Good morning. Good morning. We have what appears to be a meager assembly this morning, but we all know in our hearts that where two or three are gathered in the Lord's name, who is present, the Lord. So we can take that and trust it to us. You see the... Uh, The message before you here, uh, offering envelopes, contact, days of praise, acts of facts, all here. Skip down to five. Once again, we have no service tonight. Reason is, is most of our teaching staff, as well as some of our patrons, members are ill with the COVID. Uh, Brother Ed Riffle came down with it, tested positive last night. He was staying at uh, Dale and Pam's, so they're self-quarantining for the time being. Sheila McLeod still has COVID that we know. We don't know what the status is of our brother George. So they're, they're home also quarantining. And is that about it for the people that we, we know of that are? Terry and Ron, that's right, are, are home. And don't forget, Pastor, he's home with uh, intestinal illness. So keep him in prayers that uh, he recovers quickly. We have any other uh, announcements to make or, or uh, questions or praise even? Anything? Okay, our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and that will be 1591 in your pew Bible. Oh, okay, so we're going to have a responsive reading instead. Okay. Take your Trinity, page 794. 
that's going to be Psalm 31. When you come to that, please stand with us. <coughs> In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. <coughs> for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me <coughs> and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on you, Save me in your Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you, but let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their minds be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Which you distill in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling, you keep them safe from abusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. And in my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his saints. <clears throat> The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud 
he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you this hour, Lord, we come with gladness of heart that you and only you saved us from the premises of hell, from total destruction and damnation. You have put us on a righteous path, O Lord, and grafted us into your vine. And we have done this by no efforts of our own, lest we boast. You have given us this salvation, Lord, as a representative of the righteousness of yourself, the goodness, the purity, the wonders of you, O Lord, that shines forth through us. And we pray, Father, as we go about this hour, that your Holy Spirit would commune with us, hold us, grasp us, and embrace us in all things, that we would have a ton of hearts to listen to see and understand what is being brought forth this hour. As our brother Jared brings forth the message, Lord, let the words that fall from his lips convict the hearts of the lost, but reinforce the hearts of us who are within your grasp. Be with us, Lord. Give us the honor. Give us the strength. Give us the courage to stand for you in all things. I'll bless the service we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Would you please remain standing? Good morning. Um, our first hymn is 460 in the Trinity. 460 in the Red.
anyone have a hymn request? Go ahead. The Sparrow Song. The Sparrow Why did you pick this one, Ken? Well, I heard this song 50 years ago on a TV program, The Black Lady Sang. And the program that was on surprised me to hear that song. And it caught me pretty good. Yeah. It's a good one.
Our scripture reading is taken from the book of Luke this morning, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and that will be on page 1591. When you come to it, please stand with us. Or Luke 2, 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. in the Trinity is our next one, 691 in the red. Thank you. 
wondering a little bit about the uh, <coughs> choice of text this morning. Luke 2, a Christmas text <coughs> in October, about two months too early. But I was thinking about that this morning as I was reviewing, and uh, how often do we read those texts? When, when do we read them? December. We kind of get to things. We may spend some time in the Gospels. We may spend some time in the Epistles, Old Testament. We kind of reserve the Christmas uh, story, if you will, for Christmas. And I, I wonder, why is that? Maybe you don't in your personal reading and devotion, but I know this about myself. That's the greatest part. It's the Gospel right there. Emmanuel, God with us. I think we should do some more reading on that. At any rate, uh, this morning is peace with God uh, and boy how we need that and our world is continually spiraling into not being peaceful let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning gracious God and heavenly father we are thankful for every moment of life that you give it's precious and we thank you for the opportunity this morning to be with you and in your house and with your people we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning Lord and I pray that our hearts do just that Help our minds to be focused. Help our ears to be attentive. And I pray, Lord, that you will, as has already been prayed, Lord, send your spirit upon your people. Because without your spirit this morning, we meet in vain. There's nothing we can do without you. So I pray, Lord, that you'll send him this morning. The comforter that you promised. Be with us now as we look into the subject of peace. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <coughs> 
<clears throat> in our ever-changing world, peace is not usually regarded as something permanent. If we experience peace, we often ask ourselves, well, how long will this last? And such is the nature of peace. It does not last. On earth, it is temporary at best. And how we view and value peace has become for our society a way to evaluate the true level of humanitarianism in each individual. Ask any beauty contestant what it is that they desire when they're questioned and the joke answer is world peace. People may say that they want peace. They may fight to preserve peace. But they don't know how to maintain peace. They are unable to preserve peace. Peace is desired on three main levels. They can be analyzed as peace with men, peace within ourselves, and peace with God. Verily, one may argue that the first two of the listed forms of peace are dependent on the third, and this is so. Yet different illustrations from Scripture allow these three settings to be delineated. Whether or not we vehemently pursue some or all of these avenues of peace, we need a godly grounding of knowledge by which we may correctly pursue peace. To understand peace and why we so adamantly desire, pursue, and subsequently fail to maintain it, we must look to God for definition and relevance. God is the definitive source of truth for all things. We must look to his inspired word for our answers. From a correct view of peace, we may leave false ideas of what peace is and should be behind and adopt the mature view of the faith in this area of the Christian life. And by doing so, we hope to grow. First of all, peace with God. We must analyze what true, true peace is. That is, which of the three avenues of peace is really the most important? The religions of the world all claim to have answers to life's problems. One of the things they all claim is to have true, the true path to peace. Islam apparently means peace, although its translation means student. Yet as current events have demonstrated, many ardent followers of Islam are anything but peaceful. Followers of Confucius and of the Hindu religion claim that true power comes from finding your inner peace. These and many other religions all ultimately fail because the true issue of peace involves an external source. Whether or not you are at peace with yourself or with the world is secondary to what God has said is important. Ultimately, the question is, are you at peace with God? And you may think that you have peace with God because you live a relatively peaceful life. And you figure that because you cannot sense any ill will from God, you must be at peace with him. Whether or not you believe you have peace with God, the truth is, apart from a personal relationship with his son, you are at war with God and not peace with him. And even if you were blissfully unaware of your state with God, he knows where you stand. In Romans 1, 29 and 32, through 32, we find out God's evaluation of our attitude towards him. Speaking of the ungodly, Paul writes, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, 
insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is every human being's attitude towards God. And furthermore, in Romans 8, verse 7, we find that we are hostile to God. We hate God. We hate His sovereignty, His holiness, His omnipotence, His omniscience, and His omnipresence. We hate Him with no greater passion in our lives. If it were possible, we would kill God, given the chance, the ability, and the opportunity. That is just what the atheist foolishly believed has happened. Now you may say, I don't hate God. I admire or respect or love God. God is loving and caring. He loves me and I love him. Without Christ, we cannot love God. You'll find that in 1 John 4, 9. Therefore, if you are without Christ this day and you claim to love God, then the God you love is really an idol constructed from your own imagination. And what creator wouldn't love his own creation? Of course you love your God. You're, you've made him into something that you can love. But you do not know the God of the Bible, and subsequently, this is what God says concerning you. Listen to Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. You, as with every human being born in this world, are an object of wrath, and as such are destined for punishment and eternal estrangement from God. This is where all people begin life, and if we are honest with ourselves, we know it too. Real peace requires all parties involved to agree to be at peace. If even one party abstains, there is no peace. So you can believe that you are at peace with God, but the Bible says God is not at peace with you, so therefore, there is no peace. Or you can believe God when he says that you hate him, and that he considers you an object of wrath, and therefore there is no peace. Either way, for you the sinner, there is no peace for you. You are doomed. No peace means catastrophic destruction and eternal damnation. You see, we hate God because he disapproves of our wicked lives. We hate him because he is our king, whether we like it or not. Because he is a king, we must answer to him. As an omnipresent and omniscient king, he sees everything we do, and we know he sees it. Not only does he see everything, he remembers it all. Not only does he remember it all, he is holy and hates what he sees, that is, our sin. And because he is holy, he must punish sin. 
because he is omnipotent, he can and will punish sin, and there is no escape. And because we love our sin so much, even though we are destined, and we know it, to perish in the eternal lake of fire, we hate God and wish him dead. We know the truth. We just choose not to believe it. And how pitiful we are. I don't like it so, so I'm not going to believe it. That makes it untrue. Self-delusion, one of the greatest forms of stupidity. Just because you don't believe the truth does not change truth's message or its relevance. You are not the definitive source for truth. Not for you or for anyone else. You cannot believe or not believe so much as to change your circumstances. There are a lot of people who didn't believe God's word concerning their position of amenity with God, suffering the indescribable pain of hell. And let me tell you, they believe him now, but it is too late for them. They are still objects of wrath. They still hate God. The only difference that separates them from people living today is that they now understand the truth while many of the living go on in damning unbelief. For the sinner, there is no peace, ever, not in this life or in the next. Yet we have a craving for peace. We have a need for peace. We want to know all things are all right with ourselves and with the rest of the world. It is this desire for peace that draws us to look at the angel's proclamation in Luke 2. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord had told us about. You know, part of the message included the words, On earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And so the announcement of God's Son includes a proclamation of peace. How is this possible? How does the birth of a child bring about peace? And I would say to you that this is no ordinary, no ordinary child. This baby is God's one and holy, unique Son. And he is given as a token of peace to in fact bring peace. And the world, blissfully unaware, slept on as God's peace child made his entrance. Well, how, you say, could this baby bring peace? Well, this child comes as a sacrifice. This child called Jesus comes to restore all that was lost when Adam fell. As we, post-fall humans, are completely helpless to make peace with God on our own, Jesus comes to do what we would not and could not do. He comes to lay his life down, that is, to die, to atone for sin. And through his atonement, his people receive peace with God. 
Now we have said earlier <clears throat> that peace is a two-way street. By Christ's atoning work, it sure looks like God's wrath is appeased and he is indeed at peace with us. But as spoken earlier, sinners hate God. So how does Jesus bring peace to the sinner? If God is at peace and the sinner still is in fact hating God, something has to change in the life of the unregenerate. To have only peace from one side of the argument is no peace at all. Jesus' mission had more to it than just being the sacrificial lamb. If that were the case, he could have just easily died at birth, been the atoning sacrifice, and been done with his work. But we know that that is not the case. Christ had a ministry that lasted for years. He taught the masses and he healed the sick. By his teaching, he showed wicked sinners how to live before a holy God. And by his healing ministry, he proved that he was interested in us having peace internally, yet easing our infirmities was not enough to cause us to have true peace. Humanity needed a change of heart. Humankind needed a change of nature. And part of Christ's work involved making peace with God so that he would be able to dwell within us. God now makes his dwelling inside of fallen man. God changes the rebellious heart of the wicked sinner. He replaces the dead heart with a heart that desires to do his will. And he makes his home of this heart. And by doing so, the sinner who used to hate God becomes a saint who loves God. And because God is now on both sides of the equation, there is peace and there is harmony. Ephesians 2 verse 14 puts Christ's work into perspective. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now there can be peace with God. And when there is peace with God, there is peace in all aspects of our lives. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is this relationship with Christ and the true peace that it brings that defines all other areas of peace. If you have no peace with God, you cannot have lasting peace in any other context. What about peace with people? One of the most common areas of our strife in our lives, regardless of whether or not you are a Christian or not, is if we have peace with other people in our lives. A lack of peace with people close to us brings unrest. We strive to restore peace when there is disunity. We strive for peace in our home. From life with unbelievers to wrestling with the saints below, we try hard to be at peace with all men. In our workplaces, we may not get along with some of our co-workers. Some of them may be even Christians, and yet we are not able to relate to them peacefully. <clears throat> the world desires peace as well. 
In the workplace, workers are required to take ang ang anger management and public relations courses. Achieving a peaceful working environment is something that all corporations strive to achieve and maintain. All of these areas of peace are variants of having peace with others. Generally, humankind does not like being at odds with other people. But at the same time, however, humankind wants to do their things their own way and no one else's. Jacob, when he was going out to meet Esau, was concerned for his and his family's safety. He was concerned that Esau would not meet him peacefully. Genesis 32, verse 3 reads, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. <coughs> because of Jacob and Esau's past history, tumultuous as it was, Jacob feared meeting his older brother. They had parted ways under really bad circumstances. They parted with no peace between them. Jacob is almost justified in being apprehensive and preparing for the worst. In the verses that follow, we find Jacob praying to God for deliverance. Verse 9, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers and their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. You know, when we are concerned for peace or a lack thereof, we must take the matter, as did Jacob, to God. He is the administrator of peace. Another excellent example of having peace with other men is found in what God promised to Solomon, David's heir. In 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9, But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. David's life was filled with violence and a very real lack of peace with his fellow men. David was God's instrument to liberate Israel from the wicked nations that surrounded her. He was a man of war, and it troubled him. Psalm 17, verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching in cover. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. David knew whom to call upon in times of trouble. There is something to note here. 
God did answer David's prayers. He provided him rest through his promise to Solomon. During Solomon's reign, the Bible says that he had rest from all of his enemies. You know that because of the wars waged against my father, David, from all sides, he could not build a temple for the temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. 1 Kings 5, verses 3 and 4. It was not only to King Solomon that God granted peace. Such similar verses are found concerning Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. Various places in the Old Testament we continue to find evidence that the issue of peace with men is left entirely to God. Listen to what God told his people in Leviticus 26. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. The fulfillment of this text is found in Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all of their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. When God promises peace, peace is experienced. Peace that comes from God is the only peace that can be counted on. Peace that is promised by God will last as long as he deems fit. And if he said that he will provide peace for a length of time, it will happen, but only for as long as he has stated. You know, many places in Scripture where Israel had been acting wickedly, God brought their peace with their neighboring countries to an end. In Ezekiel 11, verse 5 and following, we read of just such a prophecy that it was about to be fulfilled. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. This is what you are saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pot. But I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will it be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. In Ezekiel's day, as with many other days in Israel's history, the fear of invasion was constantly part of their lives. Israel, enjoying the comforts of God's provision and protection, felt comfortable enough to abandon his ways to pursue their own wickedness. God allowed this open rebellion against him to precede so only so far. And then he would bring one of the pagan nations in to violently awaken his people. And when I say violently, understand what exactly it took to awaken an entire nation. People died by the thousands, cut by the sword, impaled by spears, and pierced with arrows. The invading nation was set on domination. Leaders were executed. Women and children were murdered along with the men. 
no one was spared. And when the nation was finally conquered, a remnant, a small piece, was carried off into captivity. It's not a very peaceful awakening, is it? These episodes in Israel's history are not unlike what has been happening in our country. The attacks of September 11th so many years ago were just the beginning. Are they a wake-up call from God? Do you think God has changed? Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. If God was not afraid to send his chosen people through a refining fire of physical conquest, he will certainly not falter now with his chosen people of today. America enjoys peace with its neighboring nations. We enjoy peace with many other countries throughout the world, yet this peace does not come from the treaties and the long-fought wars through our country's history. Our peace is dependent upon God and God alone. If he so desires to take our peace from us, no amount of stockpiled weapons, no specialized technology, no amount of armed forces and war machines will be able to save us from the mighty arm of Jehovah. You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will lay hands on you and destroy you. I can no longer show compassion. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the city gates of the land. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people, for they have not changed their ways. I will make their widows more numerous than the sand of the sea. At midday I will bring a destroyer against the mothers of the young men. Suddenly I will bring down, bring down on them anguish and terror. The mother of seven will grow faint and breathe her last. Her son will set while it is still day. She will be disgraced and humiliated. I will put the survivors to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 15, 6-9 Such is America's precarious placement in the eyes of God. We have backslidden and we keep on backsliding as a nation. This was God's complaint against Israel and now against us. In all of Israel's history, we can see the pattern of rebellion followed by captivity, then restoration. Keep in mind, however, that the pattern ended. There was a final captivity with Israel from which they never recovered. They never were restored. And such is our fate unless we repent as a nation and seek God's face. Peace with men is fleeting at best. And it can be manipulated by God to bring about his will. God can grant peace as a blessing or revoke it as a curse. Therefore, the matter of peace within the context of our everyday dealings with other human beings rests solely on God's good pleasure. Well, what about peace within ourselves? Humankind desperately longs for inner peace. And earlier I alluded to the Eastern religions and their path to true peace. What they desire, as well as all humankind, is to find contentment within their soul, no matter what external circumstances are present. Mind over matter, right? If something is bothering you, simply find your inner happy place where nothing can harm you. These religions advocate many hours in quiet meditation. They approve of vows of silence, chanting to clear the mind, long periods of study, and time to be in nature. All of these things sound very relaxing, don't they? And yet they are external to the true problem. At the core of the issue is peace with God. As we have studied earlier, they can look for their entire lives for paths to true peace. If they miss Christ, 
they'll never find it. We face all kinds of stress and heartaches each day, from trouble at work, deadlines to fill, daily snags that make us unproductive, relationships with our administration or bosses, to trouble at home, familial relationships, mixed homes containing believers and unbelievers, rebellious children, children meddling in-laws, whatever. We all face enormous amounts of stress. Stress is the absence of peace. And if you are stressed out from some problem you're facing, you are not at peace. And these problems are part of our life under the curse of God. Jesus confronted stress and the lack of peace in his own disciples following his announcement that he was going to leave them soon. John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. It is in this trust of God that we find our peace for ourselves. Later in this chapter, we find that Christ has indeed given us a special peace. Verse 27 reads, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. If the Spirit of Christ indwells us, we have a peace straight from God that cannot be revoked. In the darkness of disaster, the light of peace can be seen illuminating the life of the child of God. God grants peace when there shouldn't be any. In the face of any trial, the Christian is to trust in God as Jesus has commanded. And in so doing, the fact that any circumstance, no matter how grave, can be experienced with the correct perspective is made manifest. Listen to Job's words immediately following the news that all of his children had died suddenly and violently, his servants were all murdered, and all of his livestock either consumed by fire or stolen from him. Job 1 and verse 20. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And to the casual observer, Job appears to be a lunatic, or at the very least, someone who didn't really love his family. How could he immediately worship God in the light of all this trouble? Well, the answer is that God knew Job, and Job knew God. He knew that all that he had came as blessings from God, and were God's to begin with. To lose something you never really owned is not really a loss, is it? And I wonder, do we really view our possessions, or even our family, as not our own? All are gifts from God that can be given or taken away. Job had peace in his heart concerning the events that transpired. Under these conditions, lesser people would have gone mad. To be rich in every sense, in family and possessions, one moment, and utterly poverty-stricken and alone in the next, would easily be inconsolable for anyone without God. Now, I understand that Job didn't just smile at the news and go about his merry way. No, the scriptures say he tore his robe and shaved his head. These actions demonstrate extreme grief. The peace of God in our lives does not make us immune to grief. Rather, it provides us grace in the hour of grief. Job was truly distraught. He also trusted in God and knew God could do no wrong. 
It was this attitude that brought Job to praise and worship God following the horrendous news he had just received. Christian people, like Job, are not immune to loss and grief. I can recall the deaths of loved ones experienced by Christian people. In throes of grief, the Christian can and does find a calm serenity in the heartbreaking loss of someone dear to them. I was present in the room when God called my grandmother home to be with him. <clears throat> Although I was stricken with immense grief and pain at the loss of my grandmother, God allowed me to be surrounded by my family, the majority of which were Christians. I would say that the loss of a person to death is just as great for the Christian as it is for the unbeliever. Yet there was peace in that hospital room. As we stood there consoling ourselves moments after my, the passing of my grandmother, it was my grandfather's words that helped bring the loss into perspective. He quoted Matthew 25, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. In that moment, grief was placed into perspective with God's promise that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. My grandmother loved God, and, to, those, and to, to lose her from our lives meant that she was now in the presence of her Lord and Savior, a place I personally desire to be greatly. There was peace brought about from this fact, and also the fact that Christ experienced grief similar to ours. Jesus was troubled in spirit when he conf was confronted with the news that his friend Lazarus had died. And in that context of loss, we find that our Savior, Jesus, wept. <clears throat> we have a Savior that has indeed experienced our troubles and grief. More troubling than losing a loved one that was a Christian is losing a loved one who died in rebellion to God. <clears throat> it is more difficult, I believe, for a Christian to deal with this loss than with the other. Because as Christians, we know that if they truly did die in their sins, they are in a place far worse than where they had just left. We know that it is now too late for them to ever have peace again. Furthermore, we may rehash different conversations that we may have had with that person concerning their salvation. Maybe if I had said this, or maybe if I had pressed the matter more, so-and-so possibly would have come to know Christ. <clears throat> Such guilt, though, is unfounded. No one can add to or take away from the set number of God's elect by their behavior or speech. We must, as Christians, take solace in the sovereignty of God, both in the loss of a believer and in the loss of an unbeliever. Both people operated within the context of God's master plan, in that we can find comfort, in that we can find peace. God is in control, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Daniel 4, verse 35. True inner peace comes from a functional knowledge of God. <clears throat> Are you a Christian this morning that lives life worrying about what's going to happen to you or your family? Do you constantly fret over everything that happens in your life? And if so, you need to grow up and adopt the mature view of the faith. You need to delve deeply into the Word of God and strive to know Him more. With the knowledge of God comes peace of God. Beyond mere knowledge of God, you need to put into that knowledge into practice every day. Faith without deeds is dead. 
If you study hard and yet not implement your knowledge into your own personal life, you won't have any peace. Trust God and trust His Son. Despite what we think, God really does know best. Now what are we to learn from all of the study of peace? Well, first, I believe we need to learn to trust God in our relationships on earth. And by that I mean that if we are experiencing strife and a lack of peace with our fellow man, we need to ask God for peace. In my last place of employment, I was having a very difficult time with an administrator who quite frankly didn't like me. She went out of her way to make life difficult for me. My job became immensely burdensome. And after trying desperately to smooth things over with her and trying to do the things she required, with no apparent change in our relationship, I gave up. And then I prayed. I considered her my enemy, and taking Jesus' words to heart, I prayed for my enemy. I prayed for her salvation and that peace within our relationship would take place. And now you're probably expecting me to say that miraculously our relationship improved. That did not happen. Instead, God opened up a job for me when I wasn't really looking for one. <clears throat> I took the job, and now I have peace concerning my work. God granted me peace by removing me from the threat of danger. I no longer answer to her. I do, however, remember her every so often in my prayers. God truly hears us when we pray. He also delights to answer our prayers. We must be careful not to expect God to answer in ways that we see fit. I was not expecting to have a new job, yet it was in God's plan for me, and I fully believe that my job was a direct answer to my prayer concerning peace with that particular administrator. Secondly, I believe that we need to understand and implement true peace. If we indeed have peace with God, let us draw upon that fact in our everyday lives. Are we stressed out with all the things that we are involved in? Remember that God does not give us more than we can handle in His Spirit. And that last part is important. Through His Spirit, we are able to work and labor. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Philippians 4, verse 13. If we are trying to make it on our own, and more and more work and responsibilities keep getting handed down to us, stress will build up and we will eventually fail. Maybe physically or spiritually or both. You've met people in this condition, no doubt, and maybe you are one of them. They have a pattern of trying to do everything, and all the while they seem constantly on the brink of a nervous breakdown. Eventually they do have a breakdown, or their health fails. Stress can do remarkable damage to the human body, and believe me, I know. As Christians, we need to look to God for our strength, even in everyday tasks. God's Spirit is not just for the big issues in our lives. He is for the details as well. If God holds the particles of all the atoms in your body together, as well as every other piece of matter in the entire universe, he certainly can handle every situation that you find yourself in. The problem is that we want to be self-sufficient. We want to be able to do things on our own. Why is that, do you think? <clears throat> it is because, quite frankly, we want the credit. We want to revel in our accomplishments. We want the glory. We want God's glory. Subsequently, we have no peace in our lives. It is when we acknowledge God in all aspects of our lives and beyond acknowledgement, we trust God to strengthen us to the task at hand. That's when he grants peace. God provides the power and ability to do the work, and he receives the glory for the work that he has done through you. 
As Christians, we, rather, whether we realize it or not on a conscious level, are dependent on God for all things, from breathing to thinking. Nothing happens in the entire universe without God's power. As Christians, we ought to be living testaments to the power of God in our lives. As we talk, we should give God credit for everything, and I mean everything. I am speaking here today by the power of Almighty God. You are listening and processing what I say by the power of Almighty God. God's word will have its effect by the power of Almighty God. God is not external to us. He is everything to us. He resides in every Christian, and he empowers us to do his will. Stop robbing God of his glory. Proverbs 3.6, In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now realize that work will still be hard and laborious, for such is the curse of God concerning man. But there will be peace and joy in work as we do so as service to him. Work does seem all the more lighter when God is kept in focus as master. Work is unto God, and God will replace harmful stress with soothing peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, verse 13. Thirdly, I believe we need to reassess our peace with God. Are we finding that we are not at peace with our fellow man, or not really finding peace within ourselves? And if so, then we need to see if we are at peace with God and He with us. Now, I do not mean to imply that we can fall out of grace, and we need to have Christ sacrifice for us again so that we can have peace with God. What I do mean is this, if we are not experiencing peace on the two lesser levels, then maybe we have neglected our relationship with God. As with the nation of Israel, God does bring temporal punishment in our lives to awaken us from sinful slumber. Do we have some wicked and secret sin that we are nursing? If so, we cannot have a relationship with God, for God is holy. Sin is unrighteousness. Sin places a wall between you and God. When the wall is present, communications are disrupted. And when communications are not available, there can be no peace. In the heart of every believer, there is a desire to have communication with God. And if we lose this, we get the feeling that things are not all right between our Heavenly Father and us. There is uneasiness and a lack of peace. And when this relationship is strained, we lose peace in all other areas of our life. Having trouble at work with the co-workers or your boss? You better check your relationship with God. Is there discordance in your home? You better check your relationship with God. Are you restless and unable to handle your daily tasks and burdens? You better check your relationship with God. God is and must always be the focus of your life. Lastly, we must see Christ as our true peace. <clears throat> he said concerning himself in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest, of course, is a close associate of peace. Heaven is not the place of rest and peace for the believer. 
True rest and peace for the believer is being with Jesus Christ. Heaven is where Jesus is. So subsequently, that is where we will have complete peace. While in this world, we will never find that complete peace. In fact, Jesus has warned us to expect the opposite. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. The road is hard for the believer. There will always be struggles and trials, yet the world is already defeated. Christ beckons us onward home to the prize. He is our haven of rest. He is our peace. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Every Christian has the indefatigable hope that they will find peace and rest from their labors forever in Jesus Christ. Every Christian will make it into glory. All of us will experience true peace, unadulterated by the corruption of sin. God grants the believer his peace as a gift of grace in this world. And listen to Paul's words as he closes his letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4-7. You know, the world does not understand godly peace. In the midst of trouble, they can only rely on themselves. And this is a recipe for disaster. Therefore, when they see a Christian suffering who places their trust and hope in Christ, they are completely baffled. How can you have peace at a time like this, they say? The response is this. I have peace that only God can give me. My life is in his hands. And he always does what is right. May our lives radiate the light of Christ in this dark world. For the unbeliever today, let me say that I know where you, have, where you are, because I have been there too. I know the feeling of unrest and the lack of peace in your life. You search diligently to fill the void of contentment in your life. You've tried everything, and yet you're still empty inside. You have no peace. And furthermore, you can't see how the angels' proclamation that we read to the shepherds could possibly bring anyone peace, let alone you. Only Jesus Christ can fill your longing. Why is that? Because that is the way you were made. All of us have a desire to have a relationship with God. We need the connection to the Creator. Yet sin has blinded us all. The scripture says that we are all born dead spiritually into the world. So we have the desire to have a relationship with God, yet we lack the ability to maintain one. As with any Christian here today, God needs to make you alive in Christ as he did to them. That is the only way to have peace with God. Well, how can you have a relationship with God? The Bible says 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would grant us your peace. And Lord, we may ask for that, but not seek to remediate the problems that we have, Lord. And I pray that you will help us as Christians to concern ourselves with our relationship with you. Thank you for the peace that you do give in times of trouble. And especially, Lord, as we see our society continue to crumble and get darker, I pray, Lord, that you'll provide for us the peace that passes all understanding and that we would be the light in this community and in this world. Bless the truths to our heart, Lord, and be with us now as we close in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. 689 in the red as we close our service today. 689 in the Trinity.
thank you for another day in your house. We thank you for safety. We thank you for family and for friends. Lord, we just lift our friends and family up to you. Um, those who are sick, those who have needs, those who are ill, those who are being persecuted. Lord, we lift this country up to you. We pray that a revival washes over this nation, Lord, brings us back to you. Father, we pray for protection from our enemies. We pray for um, peace in our own houses and our own hearts. Lord, we just pray you watch over us as we go about our days the rest of this day and this week. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.